I woke up yesterday morning and the first words I heard was, Chris, Shane Warne is dead. And I said, what? And Elisa said, Shane Warne is dead. And I thought, this can't be true. And uh, I went, uh, I got up and I got uh, uh, the girls out of bed and uh, they were going to watch a bit of TV and I turned on the TV, it was still on the channel I was watching the night before and uh, there was Shane Warne bowling the gadding ball and a few of other of his uh, uh, great uh, uh, deliveries and I was showing Amity and saying, look at this, this is the greatest thing you're ever going to see and she's like, just put on ABC Kids, Dad. <laughs> and uh, I felt sad. Uh, you know, I'm of right of the generation where Shane Warne uh, was a hero to me growing up. Uh, I remember going to Bell Reve Oval when he, uh, after he'd retired from international cricket uh, to watch him play the Hobart Hurricanes when he was playing for the Melbourne Stars just specifically so I could see him bowl in person one more time. Uh, a joy to watch. Uh, and of course, you know... I don't actually know Shane Warne, so my grief and sadness is uh, on a very superficial level. But yesterday, we heard from all sorts of people who are far more impacted by his sudden and shocking uh, kind of loss than I am. Uh, I listened to David Boone on ABC Radio yesterday, and he really, was, he could, he really couldn't process it. He kind of was just saying things, and I could tell I, I, that, that he, he was probably saying things through tears. He had lost a friend and a teammate, and we heard it again and again and again and again and again. And then, of course, you think about his three other mates who were on holidays with him in Thailand, who were preparing for uh, days and days of sun and relaxation, and who were now trying to work out how to get him home. The death of anyone is difficult. The death of a loved one is hard and requires processing and uh, there's all this grief and loss that surrounds it. But of course, we live in a world not just where uh, famous people and loved ones die, but where all sorts of calamity hits us. Because of course, before Shane Warne died, when I turned the TV on in the morning, I was confronted with images of my fellow Australians picking themselves up out of floodwaters across vast parts of our nation. Reading of the devastating loss of home, of property, of uh, livestock and pets, of pe pe personal loss and death, the financial ruin, the uncertainty, how difficult things must be. And of course, before that happened, I was reading stories about the people in Ukraine who were going about their lives and all of a sudden have this superpower blowing them up, crushing their lives as a dictatorial foreign nation seeks to take over their land, their place, and kills many of them in the process. And that's just this month. Because last month, remember we were talking about Tonga? Think about those people. We've forgotten about them. But a volcano erupted and I suspect many of their lives will never be the same again. 
And then, of course, there was this thing called COVID. Do you remember that? And the, and the way we were trapped uh, in, our, in our states and in our homes and the, the pain and the loss and the, the businesses that uh, had to shut down and the families that were separated and the lives that were lost. And, of course, you and I, in the midst of all of that, have had our own tragedies, our own losses, our own deaths. There's lots to love about life. But one of the hard things about life, and perhaps one of the hard things about life the longer you live it, is it just seems in some sense, doesn't it, that it just gets sadder and sadder and sadder. More and more people we know are gone. More and more world events have shattered our sense of what normal is. There's pain and sadness and sin everywhere we look. And what do we do with that? What do we do in this world of ours? Well, the book of Lamentations is God's gift to us to give us some sort of way of processing and expressing uh, our pain, our sorrow, our suffering, our sadness. Christopher Wright, who's a great Old Testament scholar, says this, Lamentations is a book for today. In a world where the tide of human suffering threatens to overwhelm whatever dikes we put in place to contain it, is there any book of the Bible more relevant than this book that gives voice to the most awful pain imaginable? Or another scholar, Barlow, we cannot conceive of any possible phase of human misery that may not be fittingly expressed in some portion of this remarkable book and that will not find some relief in being thus expressed. Trouble fills a large space in our experience of life and the homilet will find in the study of this tragic poem the many varied forms in which the sufferer may give utterance to his distress, whether in an individual or a collective capacity. This is a book that expresses deep pain and that helps us as we process the inevitable pain of living in a broken and fallen world. So before we uh, have a look particularly at chapter one, uh, let's just take a moment to consider the book uh, as a bit of a whole, get our kind of left and right of arc, if you will. The book is poetry. Uh, it is, try and stop this from clicking for you. Uh, it is uh, lament poetry, that is, uh, it is a style of poetry where people cry out to God in the midst of their suffering and they do so in a way uh, where they're sort of protesting their circumstances, this sucks God, but they also can bring notes of hope uh, at times, although as we see in Lamentations, they're few and far between in this particular uh, set of poems. And the book of Psalms uh, is full of lament 
psalms as well. Another scholar notes that these have a, a sense of a dirge, the kind, a kind of a funeral song for the dead. But what, 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 the, what this kind of poetry is doing is, is trying to help the people uh, struggle between what they know is true about God, his goodness and love and faithfulness and justice and mercy with what they experience in the world. Pain, suffering, death, sin, injustice. And that's, that's kind of what's uh, trying to happen here. The, 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 the writer of Lamentations is trying to make sense of the mess. And it's uh, a five-chapter book, so we've got five weeks uh, of coming to church uh, to depress ourselves. And in these uh, five chapters are five poems, uh, four of which, the first four, are acrostic poems. So we don't get that in our Bibles because we've got English translations, but if you knew Hebrew and you read this in Hebrew, you would notice, oh, look at that, Uh, these are acrostic poems. Uh, They they are poems uh, which... um, uh, have this beautiful poetic structure that are, that's aimed to communicate deep, this deep sense of tragedy and loss. And we'll sort of notice some of the things that are different about the poems as we work through the book. The book was also... Uh, the, ne- the next question we need to think, so, OK, we know what it is. It's a poem, it's a, poem, it's a lament poem. Uh, who wrote it? Well, it's been uh, historically held for a long, long time that uh, the, the Lamentations were written by the prophet Jeremiah. And in our Bibles, we've got, we find Lamentations after the prophet Jeremiah because of the historical connection there. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah spends heaps of time, if you read the book of Jeremiah, it might take you a few days, uh, he spends heaps of time warning the people in Judah Bad stuff is going to happen if we don't like, make ourselves right with God. And then bad stuff does happen and uh, he, he laments. But there's a lot of debate about whether that's right. And of course the debate comes from the fact that Lamentations itself never says, uh, you know, at the end, love Jeremiah. Uh, it, it, it's, it's not, uh, he doesn't identify himself. And so there's uh, a sense in which we can't really ever know. And I don't want to bore you with um, all the things that I've read this week uh, about why Jeremiah might or might not be the author. But nonetheless, we don't know. And it mustn't be important because the writer uh, decided not to identify himself. But we can say a lot about when the book was written. Because it's clear from the context of the book that this is written after the fall of Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, when the nation of Israel has divided in two, Judah in the south, uh, Israel in the north. Israel's long since been uh, taken over and now Judah falls after the Babylonians siege Jerusalem in uh, 588 BC and then in 587 BC, take it over with slaughter and captivity. 
it's a terrible tragedy for God's people. And if you read Jeremiah again, well, when you're reading Jeremiah this week to get your head around uh, the context for Lamentations, when you get to chapter 52, which will be on Tuesday probably, uh, you see uh, Jeremiah basically recount how this went down, how the city of Jerusalem fell. And it's not pretty reading. And it comes at the end of a long demise as the people of God have failed to heed uh, the words. Uh, Let me again, uh, and I'll do this a couple of times because Christopher Wright is just so helpful in uh, getting our heads around this book. He says, This was unquestionably the most traumatic moment in the whole history of the Old Testament. Not only was there massive human suffering at every level of physical and emotional experience, not only the devastating demolition and incineration of their ancient and beautiful city, there was also the utter humiliation of their national pride as a small but independent nation that had a history in the land stretching back to Joshua. And along with that went the devastating undermining of all that they had thought was theologically guaranteed, the Davidic monarchy, the city of Zion, and the very temple of their omnipotent God. All gone. What possible future could there be? And how could the present even be endured? It is out of this unspeakable pain that lamentations speak daring to describe the indescribable and to utter the unutterable and to do so in poetry of astonishing beauty and intricacy soaked in tears. That's the context. That's what's happening in Lamentations. It's a tragedy of biblical proportions. The people of God have lost the city of God. The kingdom of God is dead. The people of God are banished. It's like Adam and Eve in the garden again after the sin of Adam and the banishment they faced. It's tragic beyond tragic. And not only is it theologically tragic, these are real people who've lost their real homes and their real city which they love. So why did God preserve their cry? Why did God give us lamentations? Why is it in the Bible today? Like, okay, it's one thing to know that a bad thing happened to God's people because they sinned, but why do we need to hear from them uh, in a book that doesn't ever seem to get to hope much well it's in the bible partly because there's power in hearing the stories of those who suffer uh, there's a sense uh, and christopher wright he compares uh, the uh, this to uh, the way we do war memorials uh, in the west uh, in lindisfarne uh, in the early 1900s when we lost lots of young men to war it was a terrible tragedy that we did not want to forget that we wanted to give voice to so that we could remember the pain 
and the suffering and somehow in, in, in telling that story and remembering it, it, it kind of just sits there and for generations speaks of, uns, of the unspeakable. Uh, you know, in this church we, we, we have memorials. That one there uh, is, uh, that plaque on the wall is... Uh, from the First World War, a memorial to someone who passed away. Joyce's two uncles, I believe they're your uncles, aren't they? The Lane uh, brothers who died, uh, they're on vases uh, in the cupboard, memorialising their tragic death in the Great War. And we have these things because they speak of the tragedy and the unspeakable loss And that's what Lamentations does for God's people. It it sits there and it gives voice to the sufferers as they confess their sin and they tell of the the calamity that uh, 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 came upon them. As Kathleen O'Connor says, it is a house for sorrow and as we learn of their sorrow, it is a school for compassion. Lamentations gives a safe space not only for God's people in this particular moment to express their grief and for us to hear it and to acknowledge that sucks, that's a painful place to be, but it also gives us voice when we need to express our deep pain, grief, confusion and anger. I think the other thing we have to say too is that as we consider this book, it is part of the canon of Scripture. It, it sits within the whole. And while it's right and proper to, to, to enter into this story and to feel the loss and the pain and the tragedy and to sit there, we need to remember that we know more of how this story unfolds. We, we know how God rescued his people by sending his son into the world. We sit on the other side of hope. And in fact, once you've finished reading Jeremiah this week, you can then turn to Isaiah. And I'll give you a permission to shortcut your reading of Isaiah because it's pretty long, especially when you're trying to read Jeremiah this week as well. But Isaiah 40 to 55, if you read that part of Scripture, you actually see how um, the prophet Isaiah uh, gives voice to, to the hope uh, of much of the tragedy. There's, he brings hope to the tragedy here in Lamentations. The prophets speak of a time where much of what the disaster of Lamentations, God will, will, will sort it out. So we know uh, that, that, that though this is a painful book, though this is a, a depressing book, though uh, it, 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 causes, it, it chronicles grief and confusion and anger, that we have a good God who has promised to make all things new and who has shown that he's victorious over even the worst of sin and death in Jesus. So, as we consider the pain and suffering of uh, God's forsaken people experiencing his judgment and the death and pain that comes. Let's turn now to the poem that Susan read for us, chapter 1. It is uh, an acrostic poem and uh, it's in two parts. Chapters one, uh, verses 1 through 11, 
where the writer presents the city of Jerusalem as uh, a woman in pain. She's a woman in pain, a city in pain, because uh, she's gone from lofty heights to low places. Verse 1. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was once queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Jerusalem, Zion, the the city of God where God is to be worshipped is now the place where no God is worshipped. Verse 6, there is no longer any splendour. In verse 5, she's in grief. In verse 4, the roads that lead to, to her also mourn because no longer is it, are they filled with uh, pilgrims coming to worship God. And this has all happened because of sin. And this is, I think, part of what makes it so tragic is, is the, the, lament, the lamenter, the poet, as some call, her, uh, call him or her, knows... They know why this has happened. Verse 5, the Lord has bought her grief because of her many sins. It's sin and the judgment of God which is warned about from Moses in Deuteronomy right through the whole Old Testament. Prophet after prophet after prophet says, stop, turn back, trust the Lord. Be the covenant people of God that God has chosen you to be or something bad is going to happen. And they didn't and they know they didn't and now they're experiencing the results of their sin. And then the poem shifts in the second half as it no longer is uh, uh, the poet describing the city but now it is the city personified as a woman speaking for herself, uh, calling people to pay attention to her suffering, but in doing so, uh, explaining her predicament and her understanding of why she is in the situation she is in. Let me just read to you again from verse 12, where she begins to show us how her sin means... She understands judgment has come from God. Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look around and see, is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me, that the Lord brought on me in the day of his fierce anger? From on high he sent fire, sent it down into my bones, he spread a net for my feet and turned me back, he made me desolate, faint all the day long. My sins have been bound into a yoke, By his hands they were woven together. They have been hung on my neck and the Lord has sapped my strength. He has given me into the hands of those I cannot withstand. The Lord has rejected all the warriors in my midst. He has summoned an army against me to crush my young men. In his winepress the Lord has trampled virgin daughter Judah. It is God's judgment that has been meted out on the people for their sin and it is a horrible and terrifying and terrible thing. And God has used the Babylonians who've sieged the city and now have entered it and uh, uh, executed a great destruction on it to bring his judgment on his people. But you can see as she uh, speaks out in this poem that the, the Babylonians have been very harsh in their execution of God's, ju- God's judgment. 
and uh, she, she's protesting, like, yes, I know I've sinned, and I know in, in one sense I deserve this, but surely I don't deserve this. Like, this is way worse than it should be, God. And so we see at the end there, let their, all their wickedness come before you. Deal with them as you have dealt with me. All right, I've got to cop this because I've sinned. They ought to cop it too, God. This is not fair. Like, it's one thing for us to get kicked out into exile and for our city to be, uh, for us to lose control of our city. It's another thing for it to be completely decimated and for my children to be dead. Please. Do justice as you've done to me. them and she never complains that her treatment is not fair but she seeks that others who are equally wicked also be dealt with be judged and so I just want to notice a few other things uh, that uh, are worth noting Um, and it's really interesting thing as a preacher trying to preach on poetry I remember being in grade um, uh, you know, like 11 English, and the thing I hated the most was poetry stuff. Um, so I'm not one who's inclined to, uh, uh, to dive into poetry, so you, you'll, you'll have to forgive me, but there are a few other things I just want us to notice, and the first is uh, the, the, the loneliness of this poem. If you look at verses, one, uh, verses 2, verses 9, verse 17... Uh, verse 16, verse 17, and verse 21, there's this refrain. There is no one to comfort me. No one is near to comfort me. There is no one to comfort her. No one to comfort her. No one to comfort her. She's completely and utterly alone. It's like the pain of what has happened, the judgment of God, the desolation of the city, Uh, the destruction by the Babylonians, the the pain is compounded by this deep loneliness. And when we find ourselves in deep pain and sorrow, it does sometimes feel like we're alone. You may know this cry. There is no one who understands. I'm alone in this. I'm by myself. And there's this groaning that comes with it. Four times, verse 4, 8... 11 and 22, my groans are many, all her people groan. She herself groans, her priests groan. This is a lonely and, uh, uh, and kind of guttural grief at what has happened. It reminds us of the people of God who groaned under slavery in Egypt Back then, God heard and remembered them. Now, no such assurance. They're on their own in their pain, suffering the judgment of God and the exile of the nation. Sixteen times throughout the poem, the word all is uh, there, which shows us the, the complete and utter totality of this devastation. It's a big problem. It's not some minor issue that she's kind of got out of whack This is huge. Her whole world is caving in. 
and three times in verse 9, 11 and 20, that we hear of the unanswered call. And a fourth time in verse 12, where the call is unanswered by passers-by. The first three by God, the last by a passer-by. And I think these uh, invitations to the reader to, to, to stop and listen. So what are we to do with all of this very quickly to finish? I want to talk briefly about uh, sin and suffering and, compa- and how they re- that relates to compassion and condemnation before talking briefly about Jesus. There is no doubt as we read Lamentations and as we read chapter 1 that Jerusalem is guilty. She's been warned and warned and warned and warned and warned. And yet she has not repented and she is now being judged. But that doesn't mean the tragedy is any, is any less, that the pain is any, any more uh, uh, understandable. And as we've seen, the Babylonians bring God's judgment and then some. Her pain, even if it is somewhat self-inflicted, it's, it's a really big mess that, 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 that the, the people of Jerusalem have found themselves in and the writer of these poems. And I think we can say that this is often our lot in life too, isn't it? That we suffer the effects of our own sin and stupidity constantly. As do our brothers and sisters, as does the world around us. And yet that doesn't mean there is no space for compassion, for hearing the cry, for listening. It can be one of the hard things in our world today as it reaps what it sows in a lot of areas to actually remember that we need to have compassion for people even when they are experiencing what may or may not be uh, self-inflicted mess. Even when we suffer the effects of our own stupidity, even when people we know are lost in a world of their own pain, it doesn't mean God doesn't want to hear our cry. It doesn't mean that we can't weep as Zion weeps. And we need to remember that we need to constantly walk with others no matter their situations. We need to sit in their pain, even if it's self-inflicted. Because that's what God does for us. He comes and meets us in our need and in our pain, even though it's self-inflicted. And that's the final thing I want to say today, is that as God's people suffer and experience this separation from God as they're removed from the land and as the temple is destroyed. This is a shadow of what happened to Jesus for us. Jesus did not deserve to be hung on that cross, to suffer and to 
and to be forsaken by God. And yet, he did just that. He took on the identity of Israel. He suffered, he was forsaken, and he did it for the sins of the world. He did it for your sin, and he did it for mine. Jesus went to this place, to the place where our writer is in Lamentations, and he went there for us so that we don't have to go there ourselves. We never need to feel as though God has kicked us out of the promised land. Jesus took that spot for us. He was forsaken so that we never had to be. And so as we reflect on our lives, as we reflect on our sin, as we reflect on the good on the tragedies in our world, let's remember that Jesus has been there. He's experienced the worst. And he calls us to come to him with our pain and our loss, our suffering and our grief. He calls us to support one another in it. And he calls us to himself because he's been there and he went there so that we could know that God will never leave us no matter how bad it gets. Amen. Amen.